First John chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water, the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word, as we consider what your spirit wrote at the hand of John, reflecting the truth about your son Jesus, we pray that your spirit would be at work in us, changing our hearts and minds, conforming them to the image of Christ, causing us to believe and love you, causing us to obey you. Father, we pray that you would do that work in us. Where we need to repent, that we would repent. Where we need to trust more, that you would give us the grace to trust more. Where we need to rejoice, that you would give us great joy. We pray that we would understand that, that Jesus is the object of our faith. And that our assurance is as good as he is. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I'm going to make an interesting statement to maybe begin a, a uh, sermon with. Um, faith, the idea of faith, I, I want to start off with this, can be completely futile. Now that sounds discouraging, doesn't it? Because we're always told to just believe. Just believe. But I would argue that faith or just believing could in fact be just utter sillinessness. Sillinessness? Did I just make a word? (laughs) Utter silliness. That's enough, right? Okay. If my faith is in a useless object, then my faith is useless. Uh, Let me give you some very simple examples. If I believe, if I just believe that I eating pizza and ice cream three times a day will help me lose weight, no matter how much I believe that, and I would love to believe that, no no matter how much I believe that, I will find myself to be sorely disappointed. Because my faith is useless, because the object of my faith is false. If I put my faith in a con artist to make me rich, 
I can believe all I want, but he's still going to rip me off. If I put my faith in an evil dictator to do the right thing when my country removes from him certain restrictions and I begin to think that that evil dictator will do the right thing, I can believe that all I want, but he has shown me through his pattern of life that he will not. So my belief is useless. And when I put my faith in a different Jesus than the Jesus of history, the Jesus that we hear of from the apostles, that no matter how sincere my faith is, no matter how much I believe, the object of my faith is a myth, and therefore my faith will only serve to disappoint me. If I feel assurance as I believe in this false Jesus, and I believe in this false work that he did, then my assurance is a false assurance. And when I stand before God on that great day, I will be severely disappointed. We, ha- we must have the right object of our faith. It is not enough to believe. You have to believe in the right thing. Or in this case, the right person. A Jesus other than the Jesus of Scripture gives us no assurance, no joyful confidence. The only thing a Jesus other than the Jesus of the Bible gives us is a fearful expectation of judgment. Jesus knew, by the way, this. Do you know that Jesus knew that you could be a well-intentioned missionary and still damn people by pointing them to a false Jesus or a false gospel? Look at Matthew chapter 23. Keep your hand there in 1 John 5 and look at Matthew chapter 23. The Pharisees and the scribes are men who are teaching a false gospel. And they're doing it with some great vigor. These are men who, who love to teach what they consider to be the truth, who have given their lives to teach what they consider the truth. Now, I know it's easy for us to make the Pharisees just into the bad guys, but in the first century context, they were not. The Jews did not consider the Pharisees the bad guys. They considered the Sadducees the bad guys. Jesus considered the Pharisees bad guys. Though not all of them, some of them get saved, and we can name them Nicodemus, etc. But in, in Matthew 23, Jesus begins to turn his guns, if you will, on the Pharisees. And look at verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. A woe is a prophetical oracle of damnation. So you know, you have a prophetic oracle in the Bible. Blessed are you. That's a prophetic oracle of blessing. Okay? Woe to you, that's a prophetic oracle of condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Now, do you think that that was their intent? Do you think that they were running around thinking, what we want to do is shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces and send them to hell? But that's what Jesus says they're in fact doing. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte or convert. In other words, these are missionary Pharisees, aren't they? Travel across sea and land to make a single convert, and when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you yourselves. 
In other words, Jesus thinks that if you're preaching a false Christ or a false gospel, no matter how zealous you are, no matter how sincere you are, no matter how far or wide you will travel to do it, all you are doing is damning people and yourself. You have to have the right Jesus. You have to have the right work of Christ. You have to have the right message. Paul is clear about that as well. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians, because this isn't just Jesus who says that, as if that weren't enough. But Paul also says it. 2 Corinthians in chapter 11. You know, Paul had all kinds of concerns with the church at Corinth. That church is a mess. And Paul is dealing with some of the mess in that church, and one of the messes is there's these super apostles, these great men of God who are claiming to teach the truth, though they're teaching something opposed to what the apostles were teaching. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid. Now here's why he's jealous for them. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, to the Messiah. For, verse 4, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. See, I have a divine jealousy for you because you too quickly fall for a false Jesus being taught by a false teacher. You too quickly fall for a false gospel being taught by a false teacher. You put up with it readily enough, and I'm divinely jealous for you that you would remain pure virgins devoted to the one to whom I've betrothed you, who is Christ. Now he goes on and addresses this more. Look at verse 12. And what I do, I will continue to do in order, now look at what he's saying. Why is he going to continue to do what he's doing? In order to undermine the claim. He wants to undermine someone else's claim. That's mean, isn't it? I'm going to continue, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. You think Paul took it seriously that you preach a, fault, a, a, a true Christ and a true gospel? Jesus took it seriously? You can boast in your mission, but it's a false m- mission if you are not teaching the right Jesus or the right gospel. All you're doing is damning people's souls. Galatians chapter 1, Paul deals with it here as well. And in this case, actually, not only are the Judaizers coming into Galatia and preaching a false gospel, but, but even Peter and Barnabas are essentially going along with it. And Paul has to rebuke them to their faces for going along with it. Thankfully, we know they repent. repent. But look at Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6. 
This is one of those letters where Paul just comes right out of the gate by smacking the church. Usually he comes out and says, I'm thankful for you. I pray for you in these ways. You go, man, Paul's such a great guy. But in this passage, he just comes out and starts smacking him right up front. And you think, Paul's such a jerk. Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. See, there can't be another good news. There's only one good news. But someone's out there telling you this is the good news, and that in fact is not the good news. That is a false gospel, not that there really is another gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, now listen to what Paul's saying, even if me as an apostle, even if I or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, anathema, condemned to hell. Is that strong language? As we have said before, so now I say again, in case you didn't hear it when I said it the first time, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed, condemned to hell. That's strong language, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's the kind of language in our culture that just really grates against everything that we like to be about. Words don't have meaning. In our culture, we think they do, but we pretend that they don't. Differences don't matter that much. All that really matters is well, whether someone was well-intentioned or not. They're sincere. You shouldn't draw such hard lines. This isn't kind. Is he really godly? I mean, one wonders if Paul's even godly. If you take our culture as a standard, don't you? Imagine being in the room when this is said. Imagine that. You're there with your friends, and Paul says, some of you in here are teaching a false gospel. May you be damned to hell. Now, in case we weren't aware of this, Paul goes on to explain himself, verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Clearly not of man. (laughs) Or am I trying to please man? No, you're not, Paul. If If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We must have the right Jesus, and there are many pretenders. We must have the right work of Christ, and there are many different messages. There have been many false pretenders throughout the centuries. The one that John is dealing with here was Serinthus and Gnosticism, which I'll return to in a minute. But there were the Apollinarians who came along, who, who in, in about the 3rd, 4th century, really 4th, 5th century, uh, were teaching that that Jesus had a human body but not a human soul. So he was just, he was just God in a bod. You guys ever heard that? That's, that's heretical. He's not God in a bod. He, he has a human body and a human soul. He is making decisions as a human. If he's not fully human, he can't be your representative. There were the Arians. They were denying that Jesus was really God. He was just sort of God-like. He was created, even the Son of God was created in that sense, and he wasn't fully divine. They have their very close cousins who run around today called the Jehovah's Witnesses, started by Charles Taze Russell. That is just Arianism in new garb. 
There, there were the Eutychians. They, they believed that somehow the, 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 the divine nature and human nature basically blended together and the human nature was somehow divinized or changed so that it wasn't really human anymore. There were the Nestorians. They believed that, that essentially the human nature and divine nature were so separate that you didn't even have one person. Now you had schizophrenic Jesus. I'm not kidding. There were loads of ancient heresies. The monothelites. Monothelites meaning one fellow will. In other words, there was only one will in Jesus. It was only a divine will that ex- eternally existed in the, in the divine person, the Son of God. And he, that will was in the person Jesus. And Jesus made every decision as a decision of the will of God. He never had a will of man. And if that's the case, then he wasn't tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. These kinds of heresies have run through the, the church through the centuries. They're not new. There's just being redone in new language today. There is today the moral example, Jesus. I'll give you less technical terms, right? The moral example, Jesus. Jesus basically is a good moral example. You just follow him. That's what you do. You follow him. He's a good moral guy. You follow him, and slowly you become more and more like him until you, I guess, arrive. And that's all he is. And I'm not saying Jesus isn't a moral example. I'm just saying that that's not all he is, and that's not even primarily who he is first and foremost for us. There's the law-giving Jesus. He's just basically a new and better Moses. He just has come along um, to basically give us a law. Maybe he made the law easier for us because he took away ten really hard commandments and just gave us one easy one, believe. Or maybe he's a new and better Moses because he just anted up the law. He said, no, you know, adultery against your wife is bad, but adultery in your heart is equally bad. And so, so what Jesus has essentially come to do is to really throw some serious law down on us and call us to obedience. And, and our discipleship is essentially no longer faith-based in Christ, but obedience-based. There's the Santa Claus or genie Jesus. You know, that's the genie that's popular in the culture. Jesus is there to give you whatever you want. He's like a genie. You just do the right incantation and he pops out and says, what would you like? Otherwise, he leaves you alone. There's the Jesus of the cults, whether that be the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or um, the Jehovah's Witnesses or... I mean, you know, I could just continue to list those groups. You're aware of them. There's the Jesus of Islam. He is a prophet in the line of prophets, not the greatest prophet, that would be Muhammad, but he is the prophet, prophet nearest to Allah. But he isn't the divine son of God. There's the Jesus of self-improvement and affirmation. You know, the Jesus of Joel Osteen. I don't pick on him because I just like to pick on him. He has a very nice smile. But I, I, I pick on Joel Osteen because he's, he's the number one purveyor of this Jesus. He's not the only one out there purveying it. But Jesus has basically come to, get, to make you better, to give you a happier, more fulfilling life. I'll tell you what, if anybody's ever lived the Christian life, particularly in any other area of the world than America, they know what a sham that is. Can you imagine that book being a big seller among the Christians being beheaded by ISIS? Jesus has come to make you a better you, to make you happy and fulfilled. If you just believe enough, 
um, and then you're standing there on the beach, what, when you're kneeling down as they're about to cut off your head, you say, I don't believe this. I affirm that Jesus will give me all I want. Do you think that's what's happening there? No, because that's a false gospel and a false Jesus, and they know it. I could list a whole bunch more, but my point is there are lots of false Christs, and there are more churches closing in America today. Do you know that? More churches closing in America today than are opening. And every time I hear that stat, I hear guys follow up with the statement, there are more churches in America closing today than are opening, and I hear people say, this is a great tragedy. And it might be. It might be. It might be. But I, I have a caveat to that. Because I don't think the great tragedy is that lots of churches close if those churches are unfaithful to Christ and his gospel. It is no tragedy that they close. The great tragedy is the success of even one church where Jesus is not rightly preached. That's the great tragedy. This is John's driving concern in this letter. From the beginning to the end, his driving concern is he wants Jesus to be rightly preached and trusted. Serinthus, I mentioned him earlier, was a false, a false teacher in the first century, largely stationed in Ephesus. Serinthus is likely the person whom John is responding to, Serinthus and his followers. He essentially taught a different Jesus. It was, it was the early form of what later became called Gnosticism. Gnosticism has lots of beliefs, but essentially what belonged to Serenthus' belief is that Jesus was not really fully man and fully God, that Jesus was this regular man who was born and at his baptism, the Son of God, the Christ, descended upon him and stayed on him most of his life at that point from the baptism until his suffering and death. At the point of when suffering and death was going to happen, the Christ, the Son of God, left Jesus, and then Jesus just died as a regular man. And the reason for this is Serenthus believed that the body was itself inherently evil. And so the Christ, the Son of God, could never really be, from beginning to end, embodied. He could never really be one who suffered and died on a cross. Serenthus was teaching. Now I want you to hear how close he is. He is teaching that Jesus was a historical man who lived and died. He is teaching that Jesus was the man who did those miracles and did that teaching that we read in the Gospels. However, Serenthus taught that the Christ, the Son of God, was only upon that man, Jesus, for a few years. That Jesus was not, in fact, the Christ, the Son of God. He did not believe or teach that Jesus was always the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus was not really fully God and fully man. The Christ did not really suffer and die on the cross. The Son of God did not really come as a payment of God's, uh, for God's wrath for our sin. The Christ does not really redeem our bodies, and our bodies don't really matter much, so you deny the resurrection of the dead. So sin it up. That's what he would say. Your bodies don't matter, so sin it up. Just go ahead and do whatever you want because your body can't really affect your soul anyway. And John wrote this letter to combat this false idea of Jesus. That's why I wrote this letter. John was keen to make sure the early church confessed the right Jesus. He knew that faith in the proper Jesus would issue an assurance of eternal life. 
He knew the Spirit would unite us to Jesus through faith and would create in us love for God and for others, delight in keeping God's commands, certainty or confidence in prayer. He also knew that having the wrong Jesus would strip all those benefits from us. John was convinced that Satan was at work through false teachers to lure us away from the true Jesus. You understand? That is the mindset of Jesus. That is the mindset of Paul. That is the mindset of John. That is the mindset of all the apostles that Satan is at work luring you away from the truth. That he has been so from the garden when he started whispering into the ear of Eve and he continues to be so until the end. That he is desperately trying to convince you of a lie. And the best way to do that is for us is to turn us, turn us to a different Jesus and a different gospel. He called these false teachers antichrist. That's where we get that word. They're against Christ. Why? Because they're not the Christ. If you want to see his concern for this, look at 1 John chapter 1. Keep your hand at 1 John 5 and look at how he lays this out. 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Notice what he's saying here about Jesus, the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and we heard, we also proclaim to you. You hear his his emphasis? We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. He's life. He was with the Father, and then he was with us. You've got to have the right Jesus. He's the one who gives us fellowship with the Father. Chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. It is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. See, these Antichrists have come. Not only are they coming, they have come. And they went out from us, these Antichrists and their followers. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. See, they never were the real deal. They were among us. They taught a false Jesus and walked out showing that they never really were with us or of us. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now, what are the spirits here? These are the false teachers. Well, how do I know that? For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus, and really this is better said, is the Christ, has come, or Jesus the Christ has come in the flesh, is from God. In other words, every spirit that's saying that Jesus the Christ has come in the flesh, that he is the Messiah, come in the flesh, he's from God. That the Son of God, the Messiah, did not descend upon him as baptism and leave before the cross, but Jesus was born the Son of God, the Messiah. And he remained that way even to this day. And every spirit that does not 
confess Jesus is not from God. In other words, the right Jesus. The right work of Jesus. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. See, the Antichrist is in the world already. He's here lying through many false prophets teaching you about a different Jesus and a different gospel. He has a whole television channel, a whole station called TBN. Anti, they just changed it to the Antichrist Broadcasting Network. They don't have to change one letter, just the T to A. But watch that ch- channel sometime. It's awful. These people teach a false Jesus all day long. Now, there are a couple people who buy time on there who have good shows, but for the most part, it's terrible. John knew that faith, faith is the instrument which God uses to unite us to Christ and thus to receive all his benefits. He knew that. But he also knew that there would be many false teachers encouraging us to put our faith in the wrong Christ, in the wrong gospel. And faith in the wrong Jesus is futility. It's what it is. So today I want us to see how John builds our assurance by telling us who the proper object of our faith is. In other words, who is the true Jesus or the true Christ? That's what John is driving at after here. Who is the Jesus, the Christ, to whom the Father and the Spirit and the apostles bear witness? Who is the Jesus, the Christ, in whom we must believe? And I want to give you six declarations from 1 John, this passage in chapter 5, verse 6 through 15, as to who the real Jesus is. Now, these aren't all the things we can say about the real Jesus, but these are the things that, that John says here. And you might think, gosh, that was all introduction. Now you're going to give us six declarations. How long is this sermon going to take? Don't worry. The declarations will go sort of quickly, okay? First declaration. The first one will take a little bit more time because the text is so strange for us. The first declaration is this. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who was baptized by John and crucified by Pontius Pilate. He's the Christ, the Son of God, who was baptized by John and crucified by Pontius Pilate. Look at verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood. Now, now the question is in chapter 5, verse 6, is what's the, what's the connection between this and the verse just before? Notice how he ends the verse just before, verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, this is he, Jesus, the Son of God. Is he who came by water and blood, Jesus, Messiah. Notice this emphasis, Son of God, Messiah. He's the one who came by water and blood. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Now, what in the world does this mean? How many of you guys, when you're sitting around talking about um, who Jesus is to friends, and they say, who is Jesus? Explain him to me. You go, it's he who came by the water and the blood. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. You clear? Is that helpful to you? How many of you guys answer that way? You don't, right? So why does John? What, what in the world is John doing? Um, there, scholars have argued over this over the centuries, incidentally. Throughout the centuries, there are basically three main schools of thought. Uh, I want to start with the most recent school of thought um, in history, 
in historical period of, of men we might respect, uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin. They were of the same school of thought on this. What they said is the water and the blood represents baptism and the Lord's Supper. So the water is baptism, the blood is the Lord's Supper. And so every time we come to the sacraments, every time we come to the ordinances, and we have baptism, the water, or the Lord's Supper, the blood, it's testifying to he who comes. Just follow? The difficulty with Luther and Calvin's view is the text does not say this is he who is coming by water and blood, but he who came, past tense. And so a lot of their argument tends to be difficult, especially when you go not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. The contrast there doesn't make any sense either. In other words, the verb tenses don't help their argument, nor does the contrast, not the water only, but the water and the blood, help their argument. You go back further to St. Augustine, roughly the 4th, 5th century A.D., um, probably the greatest mind in in Western civilization, at least in the last um, 1,600, 1,700 years. Augustine argued that the water and the blood is a reference to John 19, 34, and 35. Why don't you look there with me really briefly, and we'll come back. John 19, the Gospel of John, the, the, the writer of 1 John is the same as the writer of the Gospel of John, and so I think Augustine is well served to look there um, at John 19, verse 34 and 35. But one of the soldiers, here's Jesus on the cross, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. So out of his side came blood and water. And so Augustine said, see, this is talking about witnessing or testifying. This is not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And therefore, this is a reference to John 19, 34 through 35, where Jesus' side is punctured. Um, then came Tertullian, or pr- prior to Augustine, came Tertullian. Now, I think there's a variety of reasons why Augustine doesn't get it quite right either. Tertullian's before him. Tertullian is second, roughly second, really third century A.D., um, an early what we call church father, who, who said that, no, what this text is talking about is John is responding to Serenthus and the Gnostics. And what John is saying is this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus, Messiah, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the reason he says not by water only is because Serenthus was teaching that Jesus only came or the Christ only came upon him at his baptism, but left before his suffering and death on the cross. And so what Tertullian said is, John is emphasizing, this is not, Jesus was not just the Christ at his baptism, he was the Christ at the cross. And that he's responding, ultimately, to the fact that Jesus is not the Jesus of the Gnostics. Jesus is the Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary. The Christ who was born of the Virgin Mary, the Son of God who was born of the Virgin Mary, tempted in every way yet without sin. He's the one who did miracles and taught and suffered and was crucified for our sins, buried on the third day, rose from the dead. I think Tertullian is, gets it right in the context of 1 John, that John is responding to this false Jesus. 
who never sheds his blood. This false, if you will, Christ. Now, look at 1 Corinthians because I, I want to drive this home that essentially what he's driving at is this, this Christ is the good news. 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. If you don't have time to turn there, I'm just going to read. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, now here's the gospel, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ, the Messiah, not just the man Jesus, but Jesus the Messiah, not the Gnostic idea of Jesus, but the apostolic idea of Jesus, the one who really was, the Christ, died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Hear that? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who was born of the Virgin, lived, did miracles, taught, suffered, died on the cross in history, was buried in a tomb in history, was raised from the dead on the third day in history. He isn't just an ideal. He's a real historical person who died for our sins and rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he ever rules and reigns. That's the Jesus we have to believe in. Second supposition, our guesser, or de- declaration John makes about Jesus. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who was testified to by the Spirit through the apostles. Go back to 1 John 5 and look at verse 6 through 8. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. What's he mean there? The Spirit is the one who witnesses. It's not just the historical objective fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, who lived and died and rose from the dead. That historical objective fact is a testimony to who he is. It's also the subjective testimony of the Holy Spirit leading the apostles into all truth. Isn't that what Jesus says in John 16, 7 through 15, that the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to lead the apostles into all truth concerning himself, and so then they're going to testify about him? And that's what the Spirit does. And we see him come on them when? In the book of Acts. And he comes on them, the Spirit does, and they begin to do what? Witness to who? Jesus. That's why Paul in Ephesians 2.20 can call them the foundation of the church of whom Christ is the chief cornerstone. Because it is their testimony that the Holy Spirit uses to proclaim the truth about Jesus to us. That's why Jesus in John 17, when he's praying for his disciples, the apostles, he says, I don't just pray for them, Father, but I pray for all those who will hear about you or me from their proclamation." Through their word. Do you know who heard about Jesus from the word of the apostles? You. You did. You know about Jesus 
because Jesus kept his promise to send his spirit upon the apostles so that the apostles would open their mouth and proclaim the gospel, and then they wrote the word, and now we have this word from God that we proclaim throughout the nations, and it's because ultimately of the apostles' testimony by the power of the Holy Spirit that you have heard of him. That Jesus, not just the Jesus of history, but the Jesus the apostles proclaim, the Jesus recorded in the New Testament. Third, 1 John 5, third, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who was witnessed to by the Father. So not only is he witnessed to in the sense that he lived and died and was buried and rose again in history, but he's witnessed to by the Spirit through the apostles, and now John tells us he's witnessed to by the Father. Look at 1 John 5 and verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Now he's talking about the Father here because he's been talking about the Son, and that's the contrast. And the Spirit, this is a deeply Trinitarian passage. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. See, Jesus was the one to whom the father testified. He testified to Jesus where? In Old Testament promises, didn't he? He testified to him in the birth narrative. He testified to him at at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He testified to him at the transfiguration. This is my beloved son. He testifies to him through the giving of the spirit. He testifies to him at the cross. He testifies to him through the apostles. See, he testifies to his son by sending the spirit to give us life and unite us to his son. The father is the one who plans all this. Fourth, Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, whom the Holy Spirit gave us eyes to see. So not only is Jesus the one who lived, was born of the virgin, lived perfectly in our place, paid our penalties at the cross, was baptized before that, rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns, from whence he sent the Spirit to give, if you will, the word of testimony to the apostles who then spoke it everywhere and wrote it down in a book so that it would then be proclaimed to us and the Father testified to him from Genesis all the way through Scripture till now. But the Holy Spirit testifies directly to us. This is the Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, whom the Holy Spirit gave us eyes to see. Look at verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Listen, if you, if you believe in the Son of God, you have the testimony yourself. The Holy Spirit has come and given you eyes to see and ears to hear. Holy Spirit's done that. So you have the testimony in yourself. If you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, I want you to hear this. If you're someone who sits out there not believing, if you're out there saying, I don't know if I believe all this, I I want you to hear this. When you say, I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, when you say that, God says you are calling him a liar. I want you to hear that. You're not just some innocent party 
you are declaring that the creator of the universe, the one who manifested himself and his son to save you, the one who sent his spirit to give you life, you are declaring him to be a liar. If you do not believe. But if you do believe, why do you believe? Because you have the testimony in yourself. You cannot see the Jesus of Scripture apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. The Father must send him to give you eyes to see and ears to hear. And the Father accomplishes his great work by sending us to preach the gospel. To preach the word. That's why we have this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We have this statement um, very clearly about this. And verse 1 and following Paul says this, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. We don't even want to mess around a little bit around the edges of God's word. We're not going to tamper with it. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what we proclaim. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, who wakes you up? Who gives you eyes to see and ears to hear? The Holy Spirit does. That's why when you believe in the Son, you have this testimony in yourself. So it's not just an objective testimony out here in the historical life of Jesus, it isn't just a, a, a testimony that remains external to you as the Holy Spirit preaches through the apostles and writes a book. It isn't just a, a testimony that remains out there as the Father has planned and approves of all this, being the ultimate one testifying to his Son. But it is a testimony that you either have in yourself or you don't. You hear that? That you must have in yourself. The Holy Spirit must open your eyes to see and give you ears to hear so that you have this testimony in yourself. It's objective out here and subjective applied to me. So even if you have the right Jesus, theologically and historically, if you don't know him, you're not saved. And by know him, we don't just mean know about him. We mean have a relationship with him that comes through faith and by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. Fifth, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who gives us eternal life. Do you hear that? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who gives us eternal life. Look at verse 11 of 1 John 5. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You hear how clear that is? The Son of God is life. If you don't have him, you don't have life. If you have him, you have life. Very simple, right? 
Verse 13. I write these things to you that, who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. See, Jesus is the Christ who gives us, the Son of God who gives us eternal life. He gives us assurance that we have it. Isn't that what Jesus says that he gives life? John three sixteen, when he's preaching, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not ha- perish but have what? Eternal life. Is that what Jesus says when he tells the Pharisees? You search the scriptures, John chapter 5, because you think that in them you have life, and it's they that speak about me, yet you will not come to me that you may have life. Isn't that what John says in John 17 as he's praying to the Father, and he says that this is eternal life to know me and to know you, Father? If you know the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who is fully God and fully man, the Messiah, the one who was tempted in every way and yet without sin, the one who taught and performed miracles and paid for your sins on the cross, the one who rose on the third day conquering sin and death, the one who was vindicated by the Holy Spirit at his resurrection, the Jesus who ascended to the right hand of the Father where he ever rules and reigns and intercedes for us, the Jesus who sent his Spirit to lead the apostles into all truth concerning himself so that they might preach the gospel and write the New Testament, the Jesus who sent the Spirit to open our blinded eyes to see the light of the good news of the glory of Christ, the Jesus who is our righteousness and justification, our Savior and Lord, then, if you know that Jesus, you have eternal life. No other Jesus saves. Your faith And I want you to hear this because this is incredibly good news. Your faith is as good as the object, I mean, excuse me, is as good as the object of your faith. Your faith is as good as the object of your faith. Your assurance is as good as Jesus is. And Jesus was and is and always will be. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so how sure is your assurance? Your faith is certain, your life is assured because he who is in you is stronger or greater than he who is in the world. For Jesus is a rock-solid anchor for your soul. And as he is, so also are we in this world. Jesus is a worthy object of your faith. There could not be a more worthy object. Sixth and final point, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who restores our fellowship with the Father. He is the one who restores our fellowship with the Father. And frankly, this could be included in the fifth point, because to have eternal life is to have fellowship with the Father. Because death is separation from the Father, life is fellowship with him. So to some degree, the fifth and sixth point really kind of run together. But look at verse 14 and 15 of 1 John 5. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now you're going to say, oh, if I ask anything, he hears me. Yes, if you ask anything according to his will, he hears you. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, in whatever we ask that's according to his will, prior verse, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. See, prayer is an act of fellowship, isn't it? When I pray, I'm praying because I'm fellowshipping with God. I don't just do that in moments where I'm on my face in my office by myself. I do that all day long, communing with the Lord, reading his word, I'm reading it prayerfully, speaking with other believers, hopefully I'm speaking with them even prayerfully. 
because I want to constantly commune with the Lord. It's an act of fellowship. It indicates that I have a relationship with God in which I can commune with him. And in and of myself, I, in and of myself, I have no relationship with the Father. In and of myself, I have no right to approach the Father. I've lost fellowship with the Father through my sin, but through Jesus, through being united to him by his spirit, I'm forgiven, washed clean, counted as righteous, adopted as a child, so I can cry out what? Abba, Father. Dad. I can address him as my dad. Now, um, the Father always does his will. Always does his will. So when you as a believer in Jesus pray in accordance with his will, you always have your answer. That's your confidence. We pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, by the Spirit, sorry, and in accordance with the will of God. That's how we pray. All of our prayers really are subservient to the prayer Jesus taught us, thy will be done. You hear that? Every prayer you, every prayer you pray ought to be subservient to the prayer, thy will be done. Jesus not only taught us that prayer, he prayed it himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does he pray? Not my will, but thine be done. I don't know if you guys have thought about this much, um, but all of Jesus' life he prayed to the Father. You guys notice that? Every time he addresses him, he addresses him as my Father. Interestingly enough, he teaches us to pray our Father, but he personally addresses him as my Father, even in a closer personal relationship even to some degree than, than we might. My Father, my Father, my Father, as he addresses him. He addresses him in every prayer that you read in the Gospels, save one. There's one prayer in which Jesus does not call him my Father. There's one prayer in which he calls him my God. When Jesus is on the cross, when he is on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And scholars have debated over why Jesus does that, obviously quoting from Psalm 22 and what's happening there. Why did he pray to God and why did he say, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? And scholars, I think, rightly have concluded it's because Jesus on the cross is crying the cry of the damned. The Father has separated from him. He is experiencing the wrath of God upon himself. And now he no longer cries, my Father. He cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which scholars say, and I think rightly, that is the cry from hell for eternity. For eternity, people will from hell cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And on the cross, Jesus prays that in our place so that we can come to him and say, Abba, Father. Hear the exchange that's happened there? He cried the cry of the damn in our place so that we could call God our Father. That's a fellowship we have in Christ. And it's absolutely crucial we have the right Jesus. Another Jesus or another gospel, and you will not have the right to pray, to pray by crying out, Abba, Father. Instead, you will forever pray by crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? May we trust in the Jesus of the water and the blood, the Jesus whom the Spirit and the Father attest to, the Jesus of the apostles and of the New Testament, the Jesus who by his Spirit gave us life. And may we proclaim him alone. Let me pray. Father, we ask.
that your spirit would be at work in us to give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth about your son that we would cling tightly to what your word says about him that we would trust in him and no other that we would know that he is our hope he alone is a worthy object of our faith. And he is a sufficient object of our faith. That we have great assurance, not ultimately because of us, but because of the one in whom we rely, on whom we rely and in whom we trust. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Father, we pray that you would keep us proclaiming him and him alone that we would take seriously your gospel and your son, that we would follow your son and Paul and John in believing that the spirit of the Antichrist is alive and well in the world and preaching false gospels and pointing to false Jesuses, and that we would cling to the one who is testified to by the apostles in the New Testament. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.